Well, guys, so excited to be here. Thanks for inviting me. We're going to continue the series on science and faith, which uh, Matt kicked off last week. And um, so it'll be a continuation of that. And uh, we're excited to jump into this. Before we do, let's, uh, let's pray. God, thanks so much for this night and allowing us to be here. And uh, it's, uh, it's cold out there. It's rainy, but it's warm and uh, certainly fun and cozy in here. So we just thank you for your provision. We thank you for your spirit. We thank you for what you're going to do in advance. Help illuminate our hearts. Help us to uh, see you in new and fresh ways, Lord. We just thank you for these people in this time and your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Like I said, guys, thanks for, uh, thanks for uh, inviting me to talk a little bit about science and faith. Um, as just a little bit of an introduction, I, uh, I came to faith kind of where you guys are at in high school. I didn't uh, grow up in a Christian family, and so um, when I saw the combination of Christianity, Jesus, and fun, that was so contagious for me. And so you guys are super lucky you have that with uh, the leadership of Matt and great worship leaders and great small group leaders. Um, you guys definitely have that, and uh, such a blessing to see that. Um, a little bit about myself. I, uh, I am the father of Gabby and Harrison, and uh, they're juniors and seniors uh, in, this, in this program. Um, we have two other kids that uh, have graduated from college, and so we have four kids total, and we have two of those older kids getting married this year. One got married, one's getting married next week. So we will go from four to six in a short order. So pretty exciting, but uh, um, good times. Um, I, I grew up loving science, and I love science mainly because I had some good teachers, but um, that was probably the, one of the only reasons I did. I had teachers that were very dynamic, great speakers, and just loved what they were doing and, and kind of shared that passion with me, and that's kind of how I got into science. Um, but the irony is when I graduated from high school, I was sick and tired of school. I, I thought, man, I don't want to go to school another year. I just want to go play football and kind of check out. And uh, I, I remember very vividly, one of my kind of most vivid memories was that I, I wanted to go to the Air Force Academy because I grew up in Colorado Springs. And they said, your grades aren't good enough. You can go to the prep academy another extra year, and then we'll let you in the Air Force Academy. And I was just disgusted at the thought of another year of school that I turned it down and went someplace else. And the irony of that whole thing is that I wouldn't do an extra year at that time, and I ended up doing an extra 20 years of school. <laughs> so God has a sense of humor. Um, I went to Colorado Medical School and um, did a fellowship in sports medicine. I, I practice ER, basically, and sports together. Um, so science, I love science, and um, I love talking about science, especially the combination of science and faith, which we'll get into today. So... It's, it's a, such a huge topic, right, to talk about, like, debating things like creation, evolution, that kind of thing. There's just so much detail. And even among experts, there's a lot of debate uh, in a lot of these topics that we're going to kind of just touch on. So my goal is not to be exhaustive by any means. My goal is just to kind of give you a framework that you can talk with other people and kind of talk with your small group leaders and your mentors and that kind of stuff and just have a framework for discussion. So, so not to be exhaustive, but hopefully give you a... Uh, good foundation. Science, as we know, is just the study of the physical world. And, and what is faith? Next slide. Faith is believing, a good definition is believing, trusting in, in somebody or something that you commit yourself fully to. 
The Bible says in, in Hebrews 13 or 11, 1, it says, Now faith is assurance of things hoped for, the convictions of things not seen. So what, is it, what does that mean, or how does that translate? How do you think about that? Well, if you look at the person next to you, and you were to do an experiment like kind of a, a, a fall and ask that person to catch you, look at that person next to you. Do you trust them that they would catch you? Now you're thinking, well, maybe they're too small, too big, or not interested. It might be a little scary to ask that person if they catch me. But that question kind of helps us understand the elements of faith. If you ask that person, you're saying, I believe in you, I trust in you, and I'm committing to you to catch me. Um, those are the important elements when we talk about faith. Faith is the ability to believe, to trust, and then commit yourself fully to it. One analogy I kind of like about this is actually a true story. It's about a guy back in the day. He was one of the first tightrope walkers, and uh, he was kind of well-known. He did a lot of crazy things, but as kind of a going-out type thing, he said, I'm going to walk across one skyscraper to another, and in doing so, I'm going to break the Guinness World Record for the highest tightrope walk. And it was unaided. It wasn't, you know, he wasn't belted in or anything like that. Um, and as they were on the roof, a reporter came to him and says, do you think you can do this? And he's like, I know I can do this. Like, I'm the best. I'm the man. And he's like, no, really, do you think you can do this? And the reporter, he looked at the reporter and said, I know I can do this. And the reporter says, he asked the reporter, do you think I can do this? And the reporter says, yeah, I mean, I've looked at all your stats. I've read your bio. I've seen you do some amazing things. You're pretty good. I think you can really do this. And so right before he was to go, he had a chair that he was going to carry across the, the, the rope. And he asked the reporter, all right, if you really believe that I can do this, get in the chair and we'll go across together. And the reporter declined that invitation. <laughs> but that, that's what it means to really have faith, right? It's, it's what are you trusting in, who you're trusting in, are you trusting in enough to go all in? Right to say that I will get in that chair and I will go with you across the tightrope. As we talk about faith tonight, as we talk about science and faith tonight, one of the important elements of faith, like obviously, just in this, as the story illustrates, is what do you put your faith in? Is that trustworthy? Is that good enough to commit your whole life to? So now we've talked about science and faith a little bit. Um, one of the things that you'll see with people or you'll, you'll see people ask is, does science and faith, can they coexist? That's part of the series that we're doing. Can both of them coexist together? Can you have a, a scientific mind and can you have a strong faith together? Some people say, well, if you can't test it, because that's the basis of being a good scientist is to be able to test it. So if you can't test it, you can't believe it. Well, we obviously know in science and in life, there's a lot of things you can't necessarily see but you know it's true, right? You can't see electricity, but you know it runs the lights and the AV system and everything that we appreciate. If you grab your radial artery, you can feel your pulse, and someone can tell you that that's just your stomach gurgling, but if I tell you it's your heart, I can probably prove that it's your heart. You can do 10 jumping jacks, and your pulse jumps up about 10 beats, and I say that's because it's your heart you're feeling. So you can't see your heart, but you can see the function of your heart. Um, so hopefully we'll be able to kind of, again, lay a framework that you'll see that science and faith can coexist, that you can have a scientific mind and still have a strong faith. And matter of fact, when you look at science, 
I hopefully will lay down an argument that when you look at science, it asks you to have faith in something. And when it asks you to have faith in something, my question to you will be, is that enough to give your life to, or is that enough to really believe everything the science is saying? The last part of that uh, point is, does it take more faith to have, does it take more faith to have trust in science, or does it have, take more faith to have trust in God and who he is? Next slide. Probabilities. I, I love probabilities. I did a, a master's in statistics, and, and so I kind of love it. And what I love about it is if you know them well, they, they can kind of serve you in a good way. If you don't know your stats well, if you don't know your probabilities well, it can actually harm you. Um, how many of you guys do fantasy football? Well, if you know your, your stats, it probably helps you a lot in form your teams. Um, gambling, if, if you count cards, it can help you quite a bit in there. When you look at insurance and how insurance kind of, how they make their money, actuary tables and that kind of stuff, risk of dying from certain things, it's actually based on probability and risk. Um, next slide. Here's some probabilities that I think just kind of frame some of the arguments and some of the things that we're talking about. So if you look at mortality rates, uh, the chance of dying in a motor vehicle accident is 1 in 77. The chance of dying in a heart attack is 1 in 4. Chance of dying of a lightning strike is 1 in 700,000. Chance of winning the lottery, the mega millions, is 1 in 300 million. So you can tell some of these things are pretty rare and will never happen, despite wanting to buy the lottery ticket. And some of these things actually may happen. 1 in 4 chance of having heart disease is a pretty high percentage. A p-value is something that we say when you do research, if it's significant, if it's statistically significant, then it has a good p-value. So a lot of the things that we use in medicine, a lot of the studies, a lot of the drugs, a lot of the conclusions, they are significant if they have statistical significance and they have good p-values. So life is kind of based on a lot of things that we do are based upon whether or not probabilities um, are, are likely or they're unlikely. A lot of the decisions that we make, how we drive, whether we wear seatbelts, kind of things that we buy, a lot of things are based on these probabilities. Now, when, when things in life don't meet the probabilities, they go far beyond that. Sometimes we call them miracles, right? And obviously, you know, you can get lucky and, and call it a miracle, but there are actually miracles in the Bible. And how do you explain those miracles in the Bible? Do they contradict science? I like what C.S. Lewis says about miracles. So C.S. Lewis says that if God created the natural world, then to make a miracle, he didn't violate the natural world. Does that make sense? If he created the natural world and physics and gravity and all these sorts of things, when he creates a miracle or when we see a miracle, he doesn't violate the natural world or his law or his order in order to make the miracle. I like that definition. I like that that thought that C.S. Lewis puts forward. And so just because we don't understand how the miracle happens doesn't mean it's not of God. Walking on water, for example, when Jesus walked on water, um, how did that happen? Well, I'm not going to give you the answer. And if I knew, I probably wouldn't be here. <laughs> but, uh, but we know that there's animals that can walk on water. We know there's insects that can walk on water. So somehow, some way... Jesus had the surface area to spread across water and, and walk across water. Um, so I can't explain that miracle, but, but it didn't violate God's law, didn't violate God's natural order for it to happen. 
Another miracle, you think about King David when he, uh, when he defeated Goliath. We hear that story. We all kind of remember that story growing up. And a lot of us can think, well, that was just amazing how that happened. Um, and when we look back kind of on the characteristics of Goliath as a giant, medically speaking, some people have postulated that he was a giant. And he was a giant because he had a growth hormone issue. And if he had a growth hormone issue, it was probably his pituitary gland, which secretes growth hormone that made him so big. And if he had a dysfunction of the pituitary gland, that sits right on the optic nerve. And if it's sitting right on the optic nerve, that means that his peripheral vision was probably gone. And so that when David threw the rock that hit him in the temple, he didn't see it until it was too late. So there's another example where we say that was a miracle, but now science looks back retrospectively and says, this is probably how it happened. Another example I like, obviously you guys know the story of the parting of the Red Sea. And um, I mean, you think about this, all the people are exiting and uh, God's people, Moses leads God's people through the Red Sea. And, uh, and just as he leads them through, it closes up on the Egyptians and kills the Egyptians and frees God's people. And, uh, and you think, wow, that, that's pretty amazing. When you watch that movie, you just think, wow, that's pretty amazing. And we look back and we say that, you know, in that time or in that particular uh, Dead Sea, there were plates that could have shifted at just the right time and caused the water to indeed spread and people to indeed walk across dry land. And, uh, and so now, again, we look retrospectively and see some explanation to the miracles, and we see that it doesn't violate God's law. But here's the thing. Here's the thing about these miraculous incidents. The thing is, what about the timing? Like, how is it that these things happened just when God's people approached the water? How did it happen that it closed just when the Egyptian soldiers were passing through? As miraculous as a miracle is, it's even more improbable of the timing. Only a great and powerful God can allow the timing to happen in such a way as that. Evolution versus creation. Now, again, you, we're, we're taught in school, obviously, all the, the precepts and the tenets about evolution. And when you look at the literal interpretation of Genesis, obviously you see that the world was created in six days. In Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, um, talks about God creating the, the, the world in a short fashion. And just on kind of the retrospect or outside look, it seems like those two are in contradiction to each other. Um, but I, I look at it in this way that though we don't know all the details about, and I think the, God, the word of God is, is literal, is true, every word of it is true, um, I think it still does leave room for some of the processes of evolution to occur, to take place. Whether it's some of the adaptation of the species or it's some of the changes that happens to, um, to each of the species or genus as they kind of grow or evolve, I think some of these mechanisms can happen. But here's where I take a little bit of um, different take on it. What we see in evolution is that if you believe one of the parts of evolution the, again, an adaptation of the, the species and the eventual evolution to a man, then you take the whole thing that you believe in the behavior, you believe in the, the fact that we don't have choice because we're just, um, we just come from, from animals. 
And that's where I think it's a little bit different. That's why I think you can't take the whole argument about evolution to be true. But again, some parts of it, I think God may use that mechanism to indeed bring about his purposes. One of the things that people have said is that um, putting all the parts in such the same way um, as we see as our body so intelligently designed is like saying you have a bunch of parts in a garage and all of a sudden you have a, a working, functioning car. Um, just to have the parts and the, the connections between the two doesn't make, make it functional as we, as we see the human body. So I ask you, which takes more faith, to believe in that process or to believe in a God who is uh, able to, within a word, um, make life happen? Another example in like biochemistry, um, when we look at biochemistry, what's the tenet of biochemistry? What do they tell you the first day? They tell you that, that structure and design equals function. So when you look at enzymes, um, the way the enzymes, and Harris and I were just kind of talking about these enzymes the other day, but when you look at the way enzymes bring two things together in approximation and decrease the energy activation, it's just amazing that it's proximity to each other to make a reaction happen happens the way it does in such a unique way that the affinity of the substrate and the binding site is so specific that it dictates the function um, very, um, very specifically. When we look at the structure of a water molecule, that's, that's the molecule I have on the bottom there, just simply H2O. But what we don't realize is if there was an angstrom difference in the angle between the hydrogen molecule and the oxygen molecule, water as we know it wouldn't exist. Just think about the, the intelligence that the, the, that design and all the attributes that make water what it is and what we take for granted. If it was just an angstrom different in its angle, water wouldn't exist the way it does. DNA the same. When you look at the helical structure and all the pairings that happen there, um, one change in the unpairing of, of two nucleotides would completely change what we know about DNA. So what takes more faith to understand the intelligent design of these structures or to... Just say it happened by chance. Immunology, this is an example I, I love in immunology. And so hopefully I'll go through a couple of these examples in different types of sciences that you'll kind of get appreciation for some things that really, I think, illustrate a um, uh, very complex and loving God. Immunology, for example, when you think about when we're born, how do we fight disease? Well, the way we fight disease is that we develop antibodies that respond to bad guys. And so whether we have a cold or something like that, when we take that virus in, we have antibodies that go and attack that virus, and eventually that virus will get eradicated, and then we'll expel and we'll kind of get over our colds. And that's just one example. But there's many types of infections that we can get that if we didn't have the antibodies for them, we would die. Here's the thing that's amazing about your immune system. Your antibody has the ability when you're born to defend and to attack every type of antigen you will have in your whole life at the time that you're born. And that's been true throughout history. The DNA for antibody production has not changed throughout history. It's been the same. It's the same set of antibodies that everybody has. And when you experience the different antigen, your antibodies form and react and defend and attack those different invaders. But we have all that set in us at birth. Amazing God. In OBGYN, again, this is 
the study of having babies and delivering babies and that kind of stuff. And I'm always fascinated by what happens to a baby when they go from being within the mother's womb to outside the mother's womb. Now think about this. A baby or a fetus, when they're in the womb, they're having water through their lungs. They're getting fed through the umbilical cord. All the nutrition comes through there. There's water in the lungs. They take their first breath, then all of a sudden it replaces the water in the lungs with air. And all that change that happens in there, there's changes in their heart, there's changes in their liver, there's changes in their circulation. There's many changes that happen, but we still don't know how the baby knows to then breathe and the circulation system to then switch over. Even though we know a lot of the details, we don't know what is the one key factor that makes that switch happen. When we look at botany, again, there, we know a lot about the germination of a seed. We know a lot of details and a lot of things that go into making soil fertile and making seeds kind of come to life and, and produce fruit and produce vegetables and that sort of thing. But we actually don't know the one key trigger that makes that seed finally germinate, which takes more faith. In the area of astronomy, Psalms 19, I think, says it well. It says, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voices go into all the earth. Their words to the ends of the earth. In the heavens, God has pitched a tent for the sun. It is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one of the ends of the earth and makes a circuit to the other. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. David here in Psalm is describing the heavens and God creating the heavens and the sun. If we think of astronomy, the distance between the earth and the sun if we think of it as the thickness of one sheet of paper, the distance to the nearest star is a stack of paper 70 feet high. The distance, the diameter of the galaxy would be a stack of paper 310 miles high. It begs the question, if the galaxy is this vast, if the universe is this big, if God has created this, if it says in Hebrews that Jesus spoke the galaxies and the universe into being with just a word. It begs the question, if we serve a God like this, do we make him an assistant? Do we make him somebody that we just kind of go to and kind of learn about on a Sunday or on a Wednesday? Or is he somebody that worth being Lord? When you think about these mechanisms, this is kind of one of the points I, I, I want to kind of drive home. When you think about all these complex mechanisms, they, again, tell about an intelligent design. But the one thing that we're not able to kind of explain, and none of our science is really able to explain, there's never been a good definition, um, is consciousness. What is consciousness? The consciousness is the ability to know that you know that you're thinking about thinking. So that's consciousness. You're aware. Your awareness. The other thing we're not able to explain as well is morality. How do we develop morality? What is it in our DNA that allows us to know right from wrong? All of us are born with an ability to know right or wrong. What gene is that coded on? Where does that come from? How do we develop that? We have no idea for that. It says in Genesis 2-7 that when the breath of life was breathed into the nostrils of the body, a man 
became a living soul. That's where we get it from. That's how we get our spirit. That's how we get our consciousness. That's how we get our morality. God breathed that into us. Just a couple of slides left and then we're done here. Intellectual honesty. One of the things that I think is really important is that you sit in science class, whether in high school or when you go to college, and you're around a lot of intelligent people. And you think, well, I'm just because I don't kind of know exactly how to defend what they're saying about my science, I, my, my faith must be weak or must be dumb. But I'll tell you that what they won't tell you is that they can't explain everything either. When you go more and more education, you realize that if you're really honest with yourself, you realize that the more you know, the more you learn, the more you find out what you don't know. You actually generate more questions than you do answers. And that's actually the goal of good research. The goal of good research, sure, you want to discover something, but actually the goal of good research is to develop more questions. And so intellectual honesty says that if I'm really honest and I really look at processes, as complex as they are, they make me say, there's got to be more to this. This is the, the last two slides here. And one of the points that I always say at home with, with my kids is that I think it's really important to engage in these kind of conversations, to be really well-versed, to really know science. I know a lot of you guys will, will go on to be you know, leaders and doctors and lawyers and that kind of thing. I think that's great. I think it's really good to be able to articulate these kind of issues and really dive into the details of creation, evolution, that kind of thing. But I think it's really important to know that the world will use that to distract them from the truth. The world will use that to kind of get into an argument with you about these scientific things without really asking what's the heart of the matter. The heart of the matter is do I trust a loving God? Do I trust this process or do I trust the God who created all this? And that's the thing that I don't want you guys to be um, fooled by. These things are great issues and I want you to dive into science, but the real issue is Jesus and his word. It says in Hebrews here uh, that God's final word was put into his son. Um, it says in Hebrews 1, it says this, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets. And at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he was spoken to us by a son whom he appointed heir of all things. And through whom also he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory. The exact representation of his being. Sustaining all things by, the power, by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. That says it all. Jesus, God through Jesus, sustained the whole world by the power of his word and sits down at the right hand of God and is able to forgive our sins. I like what Einstein says here. He says, I'm not interested in phenomenon, this phenomenon or that phenomenon. He says, I want to know God's thoughts. The rest are mere details. And how can we know God's thoughts? We've been given his word. What if I told you tonight that you were having a pop quiz? You guys would be super excited about that. If I told you you were having a pop quiz 
and that this pop quiz was super important, that if you did not pass this pop quiz, it would determine whether or not you were able to leave the room and whether or not you'd be able to continue with your life. It was that important. Some of you guys probably be stressed. Some of you guys are probably stressed right now thinking about that. Probably have some sweaty palms. But what if I told you that, one, you could use each other as a resource, and two, it's open book. You'd probably feel a little better, right? You'd probably go, I can do that. Well, really, that's the challenge that I have for you tonight is that we have the answers to the life's most impressing questions right before us in our Bibles. We have a chance and ability to study it before we go to be with God again. And it's up to us to take that seriously, to understand his word, to know his word, and to read his word. So in the end, again, we kind of hopefully frame a lot of this conversation about science and religion and faith. And hopefully you have an appreciation that we have to have faith in something. And the thing that's really important and really worth having faith in is our Savior Jesus. He is the object of our faith. He's the one worthy to be trusted. This is a picture of Harrison when he was young. Didn't mean to embarrass him, but <laughs> let's, let's pray to close. God, thanks so much for this time and just uh, allowing us to, to learn a little bit more about your character and, uh, and your son. Uh, learn a little bit more about... Um, what an awesome God you are, that uh, you hold the whole heavens in your hand and you brought it forth by, by your word. Um, and if that is indeed true, like your word says, then our response should be that of awe, that uh, we shouldn't just ask to make you an assistant um, or somebody that we worship once, once a week, but someone that we give our whole life to. And so I pray that... Uh, you would spur us on to that, um, help us in our discussion to explore that, what it means to, to call you Lord. Um, give us a hunger for your word. Um, thank you for these, uh, this night and these good people. In Jesus' name, amen.